I wonder if I just know the intro to this podcast by now. <clears throat> you don't. Hello and welcome to Too Rash, Too Unadvised, The Will to Babble on Will to Battle. My name is Liam Nolan, and mine's Wera Karuki, and I'm with a Martyr Complex. And today we'll be discussing chapters 13 and 14. And then I don't remember the rest of the speech. We're going to use that as the yeah. intro. Harder than you'd think, isn't it? No, that's the intro. Uh, yeah, fine. Start the show. Uh, wait. We have an email. Uh, too rash to advised. Email us. No spoilers, please. I may check that email. You're going with email us and not give us money? <laughs> You can give us money to support us and, more importantly, our editor on Patreon. That's 2rash2unadvised on patreon.com. And that's, once again, 2 as in the number 2. If you can't find it in the search bar, you need your money more than we do. Very yeah. true. Um, yeah. Anyway, so a lot happened. With many thanks to our lord and savior, Seth. An immortal tyrant. Well, of course, kill. Let's get on with the show. You know, immediately as soon as you answered that question, I thought of this chapter, and I've been saving it until now. I I have been waiting for a long time for this moment. I there are cows <laughs> raised, even yeah, a hundred percent. It's been addressed. Um, I don't I don't even I don't even know what to say that this is a thing that got addressed in these books. <laughs> it generally goes like an oblique way, right? I think it's a very optimistic way. Oh, oblique, not necessarily not optimistic. Like oh, out of, oblique, sideways. not bleak. Okay. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I think it's Billy pretty direct. Piety, actually. Chapter fourteen. Yes. Uh, Jedd Mason speaks with Madame Kosala, Dominic, and Mason about his plan. Uh, also, a lot of people offer him absolute power over their hives, and he rejects them all for various reasons. Uh, Mason assaults Jed and then interrogates him as to whether he will take the Masonic Oath of Office, uh, which is in which we learn is a secret oath that was stolen from the Sanctum Sanctorum. J.E.D.D. Mason refuses. Uh, Cornell Mason promises that those who are responsible will face the punishment of Damnatio Memoriae, the eradication of them from uh, living memory. Uh, this causes Mycroft to hallucinate, hallucinate a journey to the Greek underworld, where memory is all that holds the dead to themselves. Mason and Achilles make an alliance with uh, that also just happens to involve uh, Utopia. Achilles has Mason move on war plans. Achilles and Mason sacrifice a bull. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, also, Jehovah has a new shirt. Yeah. Um, here's the thing about this one. Uh, Madame is pretty much right here. Madame says a lot of things. What are you thinking of? Um, she has a whole spiel she goes off on about how you shouldn't necessarily pay attention to people when they just sort of say that things are good or evil, because people generally don't actually have a well-formed idea of what good or evil means. Um, that's just, that's that is accurate. That's very similar to a lot of the arguments the characters in Desaad make. Fun. Well, it is. But I don't hate those arguments, because those ones are pretty... That is accurate. Uh, <laughs> I have talked to people about what they think good and evil mean. Most people don't have any sense at all beyond, like, just vague feelings about it. Uh... This is not to say that I'm 
I'm back on the Jehovah train. Now, I mentioned early on that I was really glad last episode happened before this episode. Because last episode, I said that I was still kind of on Jehovah's side, but not not in love with it. Because um, he was seeming not great. Uh, and to my luck, the team I've put in for also precisely is on Jehovah's side, but is not like a huge fan of it. <laughs> uh, which team did you put in for? The Masons? The Masons. I've been... I've been all in on the Masons since, like, chapter okay, two. Okay, just making clear. Cool. The, I, I can't believe my luck that I... <laughs> I have still not needed to back off of that one this entire time. I have some thoughts about the Masonic Oath of Office <laughs> that I need to get into, but mm-hmm. I wish Madame was more wrong about this in particular. I think it would be a better world if people knew what they meant by good. Uh, uh, on the subject of things Madame is talking about in this chapter, uh, <laughs> Madame is very clearly trying to maneuver Jed, and ta- and all of her discussions with him are pretty clearly trying to move him in a, dire- in a direction that's... We're not, it's not entirely clear what she wants from him, but she is his most high-level philosophical interlocutor, and she is critiquing specific points to make him hate God, which is also a thing that Dasad characters do. They will just start talking about how nature is, you know, immoral and you shouldn't care about it. Or if you do, that means that you should murder your mother and then have sex with her corpse or something. I mean, Desaad's... okay, but Desaad's right. Madame's right. Nature is immoral. Yeah. Well, uh, for some versions of moral. Like, again, you can say that of moral. the fact that Madame is doing Desaad argument, like, this, this is one of the key problems I had during the Desaad episode we did, um, the guy's got pretty good arguments for stuff a surprising amount of the time. (laughs) He's often right. That's kind of what uh, makes it so troubling when he gets into the, like, sowing of orifices. Uh, in the state enforced, uh, rape. Sometimes it's monastically enforced, not state enforced. Uh, on the, on the fun side of that, while we're on the subject of Desaad arguing things, uh, this chapter is entitled Filial Piety, um, which is a very important value in a lot of different uh, value systems. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a lot of traction in a lot of modern values for mm-hmm. various reasons, but it was big in the- in theology and big in ancient, which are both going to be relevant to our discussion of that. Um, Desaad in Justine has an, ar- an extended argument about the nature of filial piety. Um, and the nature of filial piety that Desaad describes suggests that because you are meant to be obedient to the will of your of your father, that means if a father decides that what he wants to do is rape and murder his own daughter, uh, that is totally cool and the daughter should not object at all. To be fair, um, he thought that about pretty much all rape and murder. It's fair, uh, but <laughs> during this whole discussion of what the nature of filial piety entails... It might be worth keeping in mind that Desaad thinks it's terrible. And oh, by the way, uh, everybody who ends up joining J.E.D.D. Mason's side deliberately is called by J.E.D.D. Mason himself a filial impious traitor to the actual god. This is the most attractive J.E.D. Mason has ever been in this entire book. (laughs) (laughs) Look, a lot that happens in this chapter um, is... Stuff that you've been saying about Jehovah for a long time. Oh, me? 
And now it's seeming uh, less crazy. So you, for example, spent these past like two full books talking about how Jehovah only sees people as like the letters of his conversation with God, who's the one who actually matters. First this chapter, chapter of this book. Yeah, that's but but here's my thing. Until this happened, that was not a reasonable position to have. <laughs> now I'm seeing where you're coming from a little bit. He's <laughs> changed his mind about, about a lot of stuff. <laughs> he really does love them. Like, we have this extended sequence of, uh, A, there's a passage previously where J.D. Mason talks about how he doesn't can't answer prayers uh, aside from his human nature and all this other stuff. Uh, but he loves you. Anyone who he talks to, he loves. Mm-hmm. And so, specifically, we get a lot of attention here played to how much he loves Dominic in particular. Despite I, all of the terrible things that Dominic wants, and how much Dominic wants J.D.D. Mason in particular to suffer. I think, ultimately, if this love does not cash out into not willing to kill me, uh, I don't know if I care. <laughs> See that you're losing me again there, but now I'm I'm even more worried than I was a week ago. What me? Yeah, um, I like I see your concerns about his philosophy pretty textually in a lot of this, but I don't think like I'm not convinced that he is actually evil. Uh, like I think all of the things we heard about him and his benevolence were true my big problem with him as of now is that my faith in his sort of reasoning <sighs> skills is just it's it's dropping um your faith in god is hitting a crisis well if that's how you want to phrase it i'll let you <laughs> phrase it that way but he spent a lot of the books up until like a, a chapter ago Seeming like he thought stuff through in an effective way. And I think he's thinking through in an effective way. He's, I don't know, he's losing me. The the he's... Achilles stuff put me real on edge in terms of what he was willing to just automatically believe. Um, I think he thinks this, he believes in providence. He thinks the world runs literally on story logic, which to be fair, it sort of does. Um, and so like... He's going to reason, he wants to figure out the best way to conclude this story, according to story logic, he's going to try to do the things that do that. And it's, it's perfectly well, reasonable, a perfectly consistent framework, and he is thinking things out in that framework. It's just a pad framework you want to interact with human beings. I uh, am worried that he's not thinking things out very well, um, and uh, that he's he's pretty severely misguided uh, as of now. We also found out that J.D. Mason's, like, comically easy to manipulate in really um, insane ways. Yeah, it's very bad. Yeah. It's very funny. It so, turns out if you physically move him in space in a violent fashion and then just tell him that something is true that isn't true, he will believe it completely. And you could, for instance, tell him, by the way, you agreed to give all of your stuff to me... Uh, he will just say, okay, I did that, have it here. Uh, and you could pretty (laughs) severely, like, a lot of people seem to be willing to give this guy absolute power and control over a lot of stuff, 
and any of them could just do a suplex and mind control him. Yeah, it's even worse, right? Like, at end of book one, um, I think by the end of book one, we'd barely seen him at all. So I probably did... Had I had I come around on, on him by the end of book one? When did you that thought happen he, in the You thought at the end of book one, apparently, that the god that he had a universe in his head, and you liked what you saw, but you didn't like you weren't like fully on board like you were in book two. Okay, um, through a lot of book two, he seemed really competent, and like he was the only one who really knew what was going on. Right, coming through book three, though, I don't want to say he's. <sighs> This just isn't a person who should be in leadership roles, right? <laughs> like, we see him be... And not because of moral concern. Like, l- practically, if you're rendered obsolete for, like, six months before taking an oath that you don't actually need to uphold, um, <laughs> you shouldn't be in a leadership position. If you're easily rendered non-functional by old men, you shouldn't be in a leadership position. Jehovah would make a really, really great advisor. I'm the, he's not a person who anyone should be entrusting a lot of active political power to. And I'm I'm confused why anyone thinks he is at this point. Hey, you just took the Kosala position instead of that, the Cornell Mason position. Yeah. I have follow-up thoughts on the Cornell Mason position. Uh so <laughs> But but everyone has seen him, right? Yeah. Like what? I I think For, Faust Kusala has the best has, point here. Has your opinion on this, right? I like. He's gonna be an advisor. He's gonna help us build this constitution. Like, He's and the not... alternative is we're gonna make him emperor, which two different hives thought was the right idea. Yeah. Okay. He, you uh, know what? I need to get into my my pitch on the Mason thing. Um, <laughs> I actually think Cornell Mason is probably right about that, but it's, and it has a lot to do with specifically the Masonic Oath of Office. So we heard in this chapter that each emperor gets to adjust the oath like a tiny bit. Three words. And they're not allowed to to change the meaning in a contradictory way, but they are allowed to clarify it. Right. So he's changed the oath. (laughs) What he says he comes in, he throws him against a wall, which is a weird move if you're not trying to set him a little bit off edge. I think this chapter is Mason deliberately trying to persuade Jehovah to take specifically the oath of office. Um, yes. What? That's because... really text. Oh, thank you. I, I forgot I wasn't done that sentence. Um, <laughs> because he has edited the oath of office in such a way that it will result in sort of, you know, less of the negative outcomes that he seems like he might be coming towards. Um, we know how obsessed he is with oaths. I don't have a great guess on what the exact text that he might have put in there is. I'm, I have like a 15% suspicion that the Masonic Oath of Office is only three words long. Um <laughs> Oh, but, so good. but uh, I think plausibly the actual best outcome here is for someone to step in and immediately bind Jehovah to this specific oath that we've had vetted by utopians. And I think based on a lot of stuff that happens in this chapter uh, is not necessarily just 
rah-rah Masons, but is sort of acting as a steward for humanity as a whole, which I think plays in nicely with, like, the Freemasons controlling the world conspiracy stuff. Uh, I believe you're right on at least a couple of points. Um, Like, the the legacy of humanity as a whole and the shepherding of it is very clearly what Mason's all about and Mm -hmm. is very tied to the Masonic Alliance, quote, quote, with Utopia, which we also find out about in this chapter, Mm -hmm. uh, and about the care and caretaking of the past, our history, the present, the people currently alive, and the future, uh, Utopia, as well as the wonders of humanity writ large. Mm -hmm. By the way, a lot of Masonic architecture is pretty clearly inspired by the seven wonders of the world. You've got pyramids, you got Lighthouse of Alexandria, on the subject of world wonders. Uh, so I think but you're this, right on the money there. Uh, and this this also plays in really well with his his desperation to make sure that he's not forced to swear any oaths specifically to Spain. Um, so as... Um, yeah, it's uh, all very interesting. I think it's more Mason is forcing the issue rather than trying to convince JEDD. Uh, like, he's not... If he wanted to make Jehovah do it, like, lying would have done it. Uh, or even, like, saying, you must do this, might have succeeded. But he, uh, at he least does with the, push. With the body check. I think I think it being voluntary is really important. Um, yes. Because he doesn't just say make up your mind right now, right? He's He actively yep. persuades. I'm the last one who edited it. Do you trust me? It it only binds you in ways that uh, I think you'd be mostly okay with. Will you do it? Like, he's doing high-pressure sales tactics on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then goes on to say, for the back end of this chapter, we need to specifically make sure he allies with the Masons and specifically takes this oath before he sees it. Um, so I feel pretty good about this read, actually. Do I think that he would actually be very good as an emperor? We gotta make sure he's in a room alone the whole time. Um, <laughs> I feel like that sentence alone has to... The fact you had to have that condition means no. right? He wouldn't be a good emperor. Because emperors can't be in a room alone. They need to do things. Okay, here's, here's why it might work. He's weird and obsessive about oaths. We don't know what's in the oath. Maybe Jehovah as the Masonic Emperor just kind of doesn't do stuff. I don't know. I don't know. Wait, how wait, much... wait. Your solution to how to how to deal with the Jehovah problem is to give him the most power it is possible for a human being to have in this setting and then say, and then he won't do anything, so it'll be fine. <laughs> it isn't. Um, it's not. My solution to this problem is that I think there are additional con- there are additional constraints on the position that I am unaware of, but I think I'm being hinted at by the story are important. Um, and what maybe... do you think those hints are? Oh boy, they they start like a while ago. There's I think there's a lot in here that suggests that despite Cornell's absolute power, there's a lot that he can't do. Um, we know that he he has that moment with Spain about how, you know, oh, well, emperors never respect other emperors. We get this stuff about him and the utopians, and how it specifically isn't an alliance. Um, it's just the thing that we definitely need to do. And I think the strongest one is that after he declared war on all of the world, the first thing he did was show up. This is someone who knows Jehovah really well. Bodily throw him across the room and immediately begin yelling at him 
about how important it is he take this oath immediately right now. And that just doesn't make sense to me unless it is for a very good reason. And I think that's my pitch as to what the reason is. Because I, I can I can imagine a version of Jehovah that's mm-hmm. a very effective leader. Mm-hmm. But I this will be utterly destroyed in like a chapter and a half when we read the Masonic Oath of Office. <laughs> <laughs> um I think mostly what's happening is that the there's lots of references to like having an immortal code of office, immortal unchanged law, and also Mason can do whatever he wants. And the, my answer to all of that is that fundamentally the Mason's law is founded on bullshit. Uh they do whatever. Uh it sometimes back up the rhetoric of absolute power, it sends back up the rhetoric of uh rhetoric of ancient tradition. Do I think there are traditions in the Mason hive? Yeah, I think the that then those things are important, sure. Uh but the contradiction you're seeing there, I think it's just like the Masons being untenable. Um, not no. I think let, let me be fair. Masons having an internal contradiction because um, lots of systems have internal contradictions in their rhetorical styles. Um, what contradiction? The they cough- the the unchanging solidity that this is the way that things have always been, combined with the fluidity of we can make shit up about the way that things have always been. Not just that, but they, they can just do whatever. The, the Masons have unlimited power. Mason has limited power. But, well, I guess I just don't think that's true, and maybe that's why you think I'm resolving a contradiction. Yeah, you're resolving I've a contradiction. I've kind of... Okay, is that... I, I, all right, I guess. <laughs> they I think don't think this... They do have... They think that the Emperor has absolute power. Um, Mason says he'll have absolute power. I, d- I guess they do literally use the words absolute power, but I, <laughs> I never in my reading of this have looked at those words and gone, and I guess taken them at face value. Um, I mean... Because there's should. a thing called there's the Oath of Office. <laughs> but, like, he can, he, can do, he can say things and things will be obeyed. That's not, I think that's not the, the same thing. <laughs> The thing that's holding him back from absolute power is, like, tradition. Which, um, you know, Mason, Cornell has been seen fit to uh, disobey all the time, constantly. What? Not all the time, constantly. I'm referencing the fact that Jed is, Jed is the Imperial. Ah, uh, yes, the, the, the extremely important tradition that we actually know about. Yes. yes. The, the one, yeah. The one that he totally violated. Yeah. Uh, I was so mad when I read that, by the way. Uh, like... As, as other people have pointed out, I like to talk about norm violations in this series. A lot of the text of this book is setting up a norm so that you can be bothered when it gets violated later and see that the world is slowly unraveling. Mm-hmm. The J.E.D.D. Mason as Masonic heir was the one that was like, yeah, this is this is coming off the rails. I'm super mad. This was this was the wrong play, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, I think yeah, everybody I think has great. one. Although, oh, you actually haven't heard this whole thing. I also don't think the original intent was for Jehovah to actually become uh, the I Emperor. have heard that. That episode's out. Oh, that one did come out? Yes. What yes. episode didn't come out? I thought that Janus. was the one you reported on Saturday. Just the Temple of Janus. The one with the force fam- The one with we the priests? We didn't do those at the same <laughs> the time. No. Oh, okay. Then I don't know our chapter divisions. You just... Okay. Anyway, back to the podcast we're recording. Um, 
So a bunch of people offered J.E.D.D. Mason extreme power in a humorous sequence. Uh, Kasala is like, hello, please help me write this constitution. Jed is like, so are you surrendering and giving me absolute control over your hive? And Kasala says, no. <laughs> uh, we later find out that Jed has gone to help write the constitution and that after he helps to fix up the cousins, we'll then in a couple of months declare war on the cousins to completely write whatever he wants without any anybody else's input. Uh, the, and that's the right I, move. I, he might lose. I, I, I kind of think that's, that is in fact correct. Um, Dominic, upon seeing that J.E.D.D. Mason has a new shirt, explodes <laughs> in, in, a, in a fury of piety and declares all of the various ways in which he will uh, give the Mitsubishi to his master uh, in a very evocative speech. And J.E.D.D. Mason goes, no, this is a bad idea. Uh, you were given this job by Ando. Ando is one of my fathers, and I'm going to respect him because I am extremely filially pious. As Mycroft has said before, uh, filial piety is one of Jehovah's most important values, mm -hmm. which is also super weird, <laughs> uh, considering he has four fathers and no god who created him. That he knows of. Yes, that he knows of. Um, so filial piety appears to just consist of doing things that Cornell, Ando... Five fathers! Spain... Five? Who's the fifth? Anslay, Faust. Oh, I keep forgetting Faust. Faust is uncle. Faust is, Faust is, Faust is the fun uncle. Listen, Faust is the fun uncle. He can be both. Over. <laughs> who comes over and teaches you German. By the way, uh, German, we find out Faust uh, refuses to learn any language but German because it will pollute his mind. Uh, that's except for that's a great, yeah. Fantastic yeah. Faust character moment. Uh, this also makes... What does this mean? So, so Johnny's got this theory that Madame's is a brillist. Mm -hmm. If Johnny were correct, what does that say about Jed that he's raised with seven languages? And does that is that like making his brain so fundamentally restructured and mixed that he can only think in this particular way? How does that relate to Mycroft's whole thing? Like, well, I mean, the true answer is I think Johnny's wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, I think the five languages were an accident, but each must have changed him. You think that was an accident? Oh, it's for sure. mentioned repeatedly about they were they were raising specifically a not. child. Like, they tried, they tried very hard to get him to speak one language at a time. It's just that sometimes people speak to him, and every, every father wants to speak to him in his own language, and he learns all of them, and then just keeps on talking in all those, those languages. Uh, also, I... fun fact, if you remember back to Seven Surrenders, the chapter where the section where Faust and uh, baby Jed are talking, um, Faust is constantly correcting his language. Yeah. Which is fun. There's That's actually a fun, a... very minor thing. Where does he get I think Greek? it's in this chapter. What? Ancient philosophy. Okay. What I don't understand is how he doesn't speak Chinese. Like, He's as if there's what? not an extremely rich philosophical tradition. Not that, that you, Madame that would, would give him. Not, yeah, Madame is... No, Madame Oriental is despotism was super in vogue in the Renaissance. Yeah, but Renaissance Madame is also... It's her aesthetic, you know? That's fair. Or not the Renaissance, in the, in the Enlightenment. Francois Quenet, who actually has come up in this book before as the uh, guy on the 710 list who's all about physio physiocrat stuff, mm -hmm. uh, wrote a book about how it's so cool that China is super despotic and we should be like them. Yeah, it's real fun. Uh, yeah, I want to say fun. 
how many alien enlightenment philosophers, even pretty late ones, all thought dictatorship was great. Um, it was an unsettled issue at the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a settled issue. It was pretty pro. Like, uh, oh. Louis the Fourteenth did a lot to restructure the nature of France in ways that a lot of people thought was really cool. Um, early, a couple of uh, Russian rulers were doing some interesting stuff like Peter the Great and then later Catherine the Great in that mold. Actually, there's a tradition in Russian politics of despotic progress, which is a whole complicated political thorny thing these days. Um, but sorry, I'm getting really into the weeds on various things. I should return to the chapter. Oh, I want to talk uh, about of progress in the context of the communist revolution. Okay. But... I've got a question. Yeah. So Cornell Mason had to use the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Did ma- did the original madams before it got blown up have a have bathroom or did they have chamber pots? Bathrooms. I think it has to be bathrooms. Um, they had a printer because in the it corner. was like they a public, bathrooms. but it was like a public institution, right? So bathrooms, probably bathrooms. Not totally public. I think... You need you need to do work to get in. Yeah, but like people could just come visit. Um, it wasn't like a private club or anything. All kinds of people were regulars there. I but, suspect that's a bathroom situation. Probably just one de- bathroom. Trying though. to make a desaad themed brothel, like you don't. Yeah, but you don't some... open with chamber pots. You need to <laughs> ease people in. <laughs> so then only Madame's inner circle gets access to the chamber pots. Madame inner circle has a printer. If I was in a place, uh, I would want the bathroom first. That's now, fair. maybe a more interesting question. Do the bathrooms of Terra Ignata have urinals? I'm putting that on the list, actually. <laughs> <laughs> we find out about that thing that Mason does where they erase you from history. Yeah. Natio Memoriae, an actual Seems bad. real punishment. Doesn't um, seem great. Let's talk. So, uh, Donatio Memoriae was originally instituted way, way back. Mm-hmm. Uh, to refer to the destruction of uh, one of the great wonders of the ancient world, mm-hmm. the Temple of Artemis, mm-hmm. by a fellow by the name of Herostratus. Yep. Uh, by the one who supposedly did his crime with the intention of being infamous and well known for having committed this terrible crime. Therefore, the I plan want... was to erase his name from history. The fact that I just called him Herostratus might indicate to you how well that worked. I want you to know uh, that I was ready with the name in case you refused to name him. Uh,. <laughs> The practice continued at various points in time. It has actually been pretty common um, in certain parts of ancient Rome. Uh, To an extent, the practice actually dates back further than that because uh, a lot of Egyptian dynastic inheritance stuff revolved around, and now I have taken the throne, so I'm going to scratch out the name of my predecessor, uh, who I usurped from everywhere. The most famous case was the case of Akhenaten, right? Who not only had a dynastic succession issue, but like also tried to change the religion of the an art yeah. style of like of of Egypt and did so in a fantastic in an incredible way uh until it was all broken down yes um it also was a big deal during the renaissance um in venice uh there was a doge who uh had a t- supposedly it's actually very controversial what actually happened uh but our accounts suggest that he tried to take power in venice away from the uh, more republican structure of the government to basically make it a uh, princedom for himself. I think its name is Marino Barrio. It's, it's, I can't quite remember. Um, but 
everywhere you go, after he was executed, um, his portrait was removed from important places in where they just have portraits of all the doges, and instead there's just a black shroud say, saying, this dude was a traitor. Uh, the thing that happens here, of course, is that Mason is promising the damnation of the memory of whoever took the oath and does not return it unrevealed. Uh, Un so you well, could avoid he... damnation of memory if you give back the oath without having looked at it or revealed Specifically, it. Specifically, the one single person who does it first. Yeah. Everybody else is not only every, is going to be executed. If they give themselves up, they will be executed by a competent executioner. Uh, anyone who doesn't give it up voluntarily will be executed poorly, which will be much worse for them. Um, Do you think you'll have them put on, like, a servicer outfit and a Mycroft wig? Ha! <laughs> <laughs> so work out my uh, anger physically. <coughs> yeah, I'm gonna... Uh, uh, Mason is gonna make himself feel better through physical violence. But if you're gonna do an execution anyway, my question is, do you dress them up like Mycroft? It's not a kink! <laughs> no, no, that's not what I'm saying it is. Is that what you heard? <laughs> I'm just no. saying I think he'd enjoy it more. Non-sexually. It's not about his enjoyment. But it can be. No! <laughs> I... What do you think holding office is about? Sometimes you get, sometimes I'm astonished the that good. You... <laughs> this is what the, the thing we're discussing. Um, it, like, he, okay, so here's a man who spent a decade every day thinking about how much he wants to kill this one guy he works with, right? And he legally can, but he can't. And now you say to him, you have four people, right? How many people were, let's say it's four, who you're not only going to execute, you're going to execute personally because it'll be worse for them. So you're already there. On these, like, freebies, do you dress them up like that guy you work with who you hate? No. Why not? Because I care about the act. Well, they're still about... gonna die. That's the that they that you're killing the. They have to die. That's right. the whole point. No, they don't. That's the whole point. No, no, no. They have it's to implicit die in the, the threat. Exact poorly done way. They, it is poorly like, done. Like... I don't think he would execute Mycroft in a humane fashion. <laughs> so, uh. The thought of the damnation of memory is so viscerally upsetting to Mycroft mm -hmm. that he has an extended sequence in the underworld as described to him by Achilles. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is why I was summoned here today, because this is super interesting. Um, because, A, this is the second time that this has happened, but this is a really, really specific reference mm -hmm. to Book 11 of the Odyssey. Um brief plot synopsis of the Odyssey. Odysseus is telling his story of all of his time wandering the Earth. Uh, at a certain point in time, he goes into the underworld to try and find out uh, some information that will help him get home. Uh, what? And the description of the underworld there uh, is similar in a lot of important ways to what's happening in this scene. There's a bunch of shades wandering around. They can't speak. They don't even really know who they are in a lot of important ways, um, and they only retain some aspects of themselves. In Homer, it's more that they have 
their bodies have been changed based on the state that they were uh, in when they died. So if you had your eyes pecked out by the crows before your funeral, you will be blind in the afterlife. Uh, here it's all tied to uh, what is remembered about you, which is interesting because it ties back to the ancient Greek conception of Kleos, which is the other important uh, concept in the Iliad and the Odyssey, which is the undying fame that is attached to your name for the rest of, of eternity. Um, the various ghosts that Mycroft encounters have lost most of their characteristics because of what is remembered about them is very little. In some cases, it is only the name in a baptismal registry. In other cases, it is only the work that they have created. In other cases, they are uh, more strongly associated with one particular aspect, such as Agamemnon's face is the face that he never had in life, but is the uh, two, uh, funeral mask of Agamemnon that was uh, excavated by that guy who excavated Troy and then had a lot of mistaken ideas. There's there's like zero chance that's Agamemnon's actual mask because it's the wrong era, oh. let alone all the other problems with it. Um, but so many people have seen that mask that now they think it's Agamemnon's face and associated with him. Um, Mycroft then has this really intense freakout where he's not sure who he is anymore and is afraid of losing himself and the reader calls him back. And uh, Mycroft talks about... Well, let me get the line exactly. It's really good. Uh, uh, I am Mycroft Canner. I weep for joy as it comes to my lips. My name, my past, myself. Draw off vain shadow. I will never be yours. I am armored against you forever now with this strong master reader at my side. Draw off oh, and one? hear me laugh and know that you will never have me. Uh, there's a little bit more there. Sorry. Uh... I'm looking specifically for the part where he's talking about how he has blazed his name into the earth with blood and ashes. Oh, not the oh. one after the reader calls to him? It's it's like a line after that. It's No, the next is Agamemnon. Okay. Uh, let me grab it real quick. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Blood and ashes. Murders. Some of this should be cut. Uh, I don't think it is where you think it is. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's immediately before that. Um, oh, okay. Uh... Uh, ah, and to this absolute, I will never let you, you take it, me. David. I will carve my memory into history by work, by force, by guile, in swaths of blood and ashes. If I must, I will. I part my lips to shout my name into the dark, but grow for it, slipping away. I am, I am. Um, the interesting thing about this is a blood and ashes are imagery associated with the dead in Homeric story because you burn the you burn people after they die, so the ashes are there. Um, he's talking about being remembered for the people that he's killed. Mm -hmm. um, a, psychologically, this is the thing that has fucked Mycroft up so badly is all the people that he's killed, and it's also the thing that will make him unable to be forgotten. That's gotta be rough. Uh, but on top of that, this is Kleos at its most Kleos. Your name, specifically your name, is tied to the deeds you have done by killing other important people. This is the Iliad to a T. Every time in the Iliad where there's just a list of and then he killed him, and then he killed him, and then he killed him, and death covered his eyes. All of those are meant to be the legend that is spoken afterwards, because you have been made in some small way immortal by having killed other people who mattered. You have conquered them on the field of battle, you have bested them, your legend will never die. Uh, oh, that is, is good, because it immediately yes. turns around and it didn't work, and it's the book instead. Uh, in part, yes, because of that whole thing in the penultimate chapter of Seven Surrenders where he talks about the special immortality that we think comes from having written things down, 
during his whole discussion of how Diogenes is actually the best. Um, but on top of this, that connects back to that chapter again, because Sniper explicitly rejects the idea that having the highest body count is how you become most famous, because he talks to Sniper about how you could have killed uh, all these people. Did you kill Jehovah just so that you would be remembered, etc.? Mm-hmm. Um, it ties back to Achilles, of course. Um, it, oh, sorry, it connects to a lot of different things, and I'm trying to remember which ones are appropriate to talk about. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Um, but it's also very specifically a Homeric way of looking at the world, because I guess Mycroft has just read so much goddamn Homer and been so Greek all this time that he just thinks like a Homeric hero. But like, we had this whole sequence earlier where he's talking, where uh, they're talking about taking away Sa- uh, Saladin's uh, Apollo cloak, and Mycroft freaks out and starts screaming about how on the battlefields of Troy you don't you strip the armor of your defeated foe and it becomes yours. Yeah. Uh, so Mycroft has just. He talks so much about being a Greek that he became so Greek as to not even be what modern Greek is anymore. It's kind of bizarre. Well, but he rejects the it. The Greek in the story is like must be different from like our notion than the Greeks in Greece notion of Greece today. Papa's pretty regular Greek. Papa doesn't talk about the church. Hang Nobody on. Nobody talks about any church. Wait, back up. I'm I I have a rare opportunity to to yell about how you're wrong about this. Um, the thing that happens next is he rejects that immediately. His plan doesn't work. He slips away, and it is the reader and it is his writing, not his deeds, that armor him against against death. That's the whole you know thing what? this passage does. I like yours more. It's more hopeful. And also true for us. We don't. We didn't know he was uh, more yeah. helpful. It's the text. <laughs> it can so be more helpful, level, and also the text. The text can be helpful. Uh, it's pretty great. Uh, thank you very much for that. Um, other interesting Homeric shit going on in this chapter. I already mentioned uh, Saladin is described in ways that are very similar to Argus in the Odyssey. Um, no, this what? is not technically hmm? Argus. You didn't mention that. Oh, yeah, the dog. dog. Yeah, sorry, Argus, the, the yes, guy who's the totally a man? Uh, at, a, at a certain point after the Iliad, um, Diomedes goes on this uh, little mini quest um, with another Greek warlord. Uh, they go and they steal some important stuff, and on the way back, the other warlord tries to kill Diomedes so he can get all the glory for himself. Uh, Diomedes disarms him, throws him to the ground, etc., and prepares to kill him and stops himself from doing so because he knows that he actually needs that warlord and everything that warlord can do in order to win the war, ultimately. So, even though he doesn't want this person alive, even though he has every reason to hate him on a personal level, he lets him live because of what he can do. Does that sound like anybody you know? <laughs> in fact, it's, it's pretty much called out by Mycroft saying... You're so merciful, you want to kill me so bad, but you let me live anyway, even though I don't deserve to. Uh, so we've got some Caesar as Diomedes thing going on, which is kind of cute. Uh, then we get to the real, real money shot, as it were. Uh, we have Achilles. Achilles talks about priests and all of these things, and very briefly he says that... Uh, a wise man might throw an infant from a parapet to prevent him from seeking revenge later, but nobody violates. Uh, 
Yeah. There's some things going on here, because during the sack of Troy, uh, Hector's infant son, Astyanax, is killed. Uh, various stories put it various ways. In The Trojan Women by, I believe it's Euripides, uh, he's thrown by the uh, off of the walls by Odysseus. In some versions, he's killed by Neoptolemus. In some versions, his body is killed King Priam. Uh, but the relevant thing here is that the wise man who's counseling this is Odysseus, and Achilles is loosely referencing the famously worst atrocity of the entire Trojan War, the murder of Astyanax, offhandedly and very subtly. Um, when I talk sometimes about how subtle some of the Trojan references in this book can be, this is the one I have been thinking of the entire time, because the first time I read this, I broke down crying, freaking out, because I am very sensitive to the death of Astyanax. Um, and I caught it in this offhand little reference that is very, very definitely deliberate. Um, but, yeah, it got me. Um, okay. Well then, in the in the service of not making people cry again, uh, one other great thing about this section is that it opens with Mycroft just immediately passing out. And then we get Saladin, uh, again, tasting like feta cheese. Yeah, dogs don't taste like feta cheese, Liam. <laughs> they do if they've been eating cheese. <laughs> no, they still what? taste like dog! I think Mycroft at this point um, has developed the palate <laughs> to tell the difference. Also, like, uh, Saladin is described as having bronze skin. I don't... Mm -hmm. A dog wouldn't be described that way. He'd be described in terms of fur. No, the dog has Mycroft's skin. By the way, this is, I believe, our only textual reference to what Mycroft's skin color is in the entire series, I think. Well, also, he's Greek. Yeah, oh, yeah, everyone in the same country has the exact same skin color. Greek is uh, not necessarily very indicative of skin color. So let me, let me be clear about this. Not only is Mycroft Greek, Mycroft is, like, aggressively Greek. Uh, <laughs> Agreed. He's the Greekest, if you will. Sure. He's too Greek. So this isn't a huge surprise. Okay. Um, There's like, yeah, people so, in Greece have a lot, a wide variety of skin colors. So I think that the Saladin dog, who is just Saladin, <laughs> to be clear, probably is mostly human skin. So a dog covered in human skin. Well, we know he has some fur because he has the shampoo that Mycroft uses on him. But like, yeah, like a Siamese cat, except it's a dog. A large dog. That's not what a Siamese cat looks like. Oh, am I You're thinking, thinking of, of the an wrong Egyptian kind hairless. of cat? Which one hasn't? Which one doesn't have hair? Egyptian hairless. Which one is a Siamese cat? The like cute ones with like the the gray tan fur and the black faces. I'm gonna be honest. I really only understand two kinds of cats, and it's the kind with fur, and then the kind that doesn't have fur. Um, but yeah, so like mostly <laughs> hairless. Wait, 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 is it hairless or is it covered in skin on top of its hair? Well, it's a, it was burn treatment, right? Oh, so you're not even, so you're not even going with like, Saladin was a person, but now there is a dog that Mycroft calls Saladin. You're saying that the explosion and Saladin even then were a dog. That was a dog. Yeah. Wait, maybe not. What was... Because Papa knows Saladin existed and thought he'd but... been dead the whole time. Did Papa say that Saladin was a sibling? Basib. Or the pet dog? Basib. 
Okay. But he knew Mycroft had a pet dog. Yes, at a later date. I'm not sure if I think Saladin was a dog during the explosion then. Um, You're making it sound like he was transformed. <laughs> well, it's difficult. This is the same name. Like, I think the character we've been... The character we know to be Saladin, I, I am postulating, is the dog, right? So I don't know if there was another human Saladin, or if there must have been. So the dog stuff must have happened after the fact. Um, so, like, Saladin, the person, died in the explosion. Saladin, the dog, was rescued by Mycroft and given new skin. I don't know if I need the skin. I don't know. You know what? Let me let me take a week to figure out my skin timeline on this. Okay. Um, okay. Like neither of them sound absurd to me. Hmm. Uh, neither of them sound absurd to you. No. Okay. In the meantime, can I keep talking about Homer? Actually, in the meantime, we need to talk about other things that happen. Um, it's we're we're pretty deep in. So, people check on Mycroft this time. Then, oh no, where where even are we? Then Jehovah agrees to go and help the cousins, and then go to war with the cousins after the fact. Actually, great. Yeah, look, I I don't think Jehovah is all bad or all wrong. Um, yeah, it's we've been we've been put in in a difficult position, and I'm I'm a big fan of how the book has done that, and I'd like it even better if I didn't have to constantly narrate my thoughts about it to an audience. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, the Latin here was so difficult that 9A needed help and got it from Xiaolu Gilbreaker. So they did survive the bombing. Uh, Xiaolu did, at least. It was somewhat unclear, as far as I was concerned. Mm-hmm. You, I, I remember you were talking about them. You were talking about uh, guards being unconscious and therefore thought that... Uh, Martin's spouse had been killed. That one bit came of a out too, there. huh? I cannot keep track of what the audience knows and doesn't know anymore. I'm a, I'm a wreck. Um, like a publicist. We the may week have of. been, we may have been recording too many of these too quickly. <laughs> yeah, because I'm, I'm I don't know when what happened. <laughs> so then we get the alliance. Mm-hmm. Caesar and Achilles, they're going to be best friends now. Um, mm-hmm. I think this is mostly good news. Hmm. I still support the Masons. Uh, on the subject of the alliance here, A, uh, the logic that Caesar uses to get Achilles on his side mm-hmm. is to talk about various forms of filial piety. Mm-hmm. Uh, firstly, the honoring of one's father in a literal sense, that is, uh, doing what your father wants you to do and obedient to him. Uh, Achilles, of course, is the son of Peleus, and... Uh, Peleus isn't really a figure in the Trojan War saga itself, but uh, he was also a great hero. He did a bunch of things. He went on the journey, uh, a journey with uh, Heracles. Um, they fought the Amazons together. Uh, they did a bunch of various things, various heroic deeds. Um, and Achilles is in a certain sense following in his father's footsteps by going to Troy and doing heroic deeds there. Uh, but also... It's filial piety in the sense of honoring all those who came before you, honoring mm-hmm. the ancestors. Uh, Mycroft has this part in the in the underworld section where he talks about the funerary practices of Greeks and Romans and honoring the dead. Uh, the Romans actually had a room in your house uh, where you kept the death masks of your ancestors. Mm-hmm. And uh, every year there was a holiday 
where you would hire a bunch of actors to wear the faces of your dead ancestors and talk about all of the great things they've done and ask you what you will do and what have you done that will be remembered throughout history. Um, so here you have this Greek concerned with Kleos talking to this fake Roman who's concerned with honoring the past and honoring tradition and honoring memory mm -hmm. and basically saying, I can understand this, I can respect this, I can honor this, and this is a person whom I understand and who I can sympathize with. Mm -hmm. and, who, and I would rather, if all other things are equal, side with someone whose mind I can understand. Yeah. Uh, that which is... apparently consists of approximately two people, and one of whom is Mycroft, who is literally insane. Yeah, not great sign. It's... It's very sad for Achilles that Mycroft is his second friend. <laughs> Which is weird, because Mycroft does not consider them friends. Like, Mycroft has a line earlier about how Achilles will not uh, break bread with a parricide, but here Achilles is talking about the two of them uh, in this context that makes it seem like at least they understand each other, if not are actually friendly. Wasn't that Mason? That is... No, that was a... Uh, will not break bread with someone who has killed Apollomave. Uh, oh, okay. There are a lot of people <laughs> right, who right, will right. not break bread with Mycroft because that would require giving him proper hospitality. Mm -hmm. uh, that's so reasonable. Which is another great thing from Homer. I do want to note... Kind of double sad, then. I want to note my general opinion about this this whole change, which is, uh, if I may quote someone... All right. The tradition of Wait. all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. Okay. Yeah. This fucking sucks. If the future is decided by a fucking regressive autocratic state and a person who literally a, a fucking terrible warlord, atrocity made man, uh, brought up by a possible medical child, that's bad. The future is bad. It sucks. <laughs> we should murder it. I don't know. That doesn't seem that bad to me. Uh, I have a lot of other quotes I want, 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 maybe want to do. But do I, you I just... not... Hmm? Wait, do you not want to to have your word in the future? I want the future That's to so be... depressing. What? So the I want the future here... to be free. And I also want to be free of the future. Uh, so part of the idea for a lot of cultures when they're talking about the debt we owe to the past is that we want our own uh, value. We want something of ours to carry forward into the future. And therefore... We want to honor the past and instill the value that the past should be honored, at least in some respect. That does not necessarily mean we have to have the same values as them, or we have to say that they were right about everything. But it means, you know, not erasing them deliberately, not destroying them, and in some way honoring them in, in some capacity. That's what Achilles thinks is important. Well, Achilles, Achilles wants a future... That the past would understand. Uh, I want a future that is so gloriously alien that I have no hope of understanding it and would cry reaping before it. So there's a interesting post I, by Scott mm. Alexander that talks about how actual futurism should make you really uncomfortable and morally weirded out and, and like upset. Um, I think that's on his review of The Age of M. Um, are you of that opinion? I don't like The Age of M. Uh, but certainly, this should not. People should not choose not to do an AGM because it would offend me, because I, in the past, have my morals. So let me be clear about something real quick. Um, if you're listening to this podcast and you're in the future, especially a future where I'm no longer in it, 
ignore my co-host. I insist you remember me. <laughs> Liam Nolan. Sing, O muse, of Liam, whose takes brought wrath a thousandfold upon the cousins. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot... I, I'm struggling to even wrap my head around, like, a model of reality where you, where you don't want yourself to carry on. Like, that's the appeal of the afterlife, right? And we don't get that. I want to live. All we really get, don't get is what wrong. we leave behind. I don't... I want to live. Um, but even if I live, I don't want people to be bound. I mean, I want to matter only so much as another living person matters. If I live. And if I don't, I'm an episode of the dead. Which is to say, uh, not at all. What uh, was question, your thing? Then. Oh, uh, yes. Part of this has to do with generations, you know, the next generation doing what it would behold to to its parents and its parents and its parents before that. This ties very heavily to the concept of the Masonic Oath, which is a one-way conversation. Mm -hmm. So is all of history. It's a one-way conversation. Forward, forward, forward. A uh, lot of beautiful mm -hmm. ideas here. I like it a lot. I didn't realize these were controversial ideas, <laughs> I guess is the thing. Ah, like no, I, it's here's here's a fun way to make this idea controversial. Um, but it's already controversial. It's already bad. <laughs> here's okay. Uh, uh, some an uh, ancestors, at least culturally speaking, uh, thought it was a good idea to put up statues to Confederate uh, commanders, generals, and politicians. Mm -hmm. Now, our modern uh, moral sensibilities thinks that was wrong. Mm -hmm. In fact, mm -hmm. is able. Uh, to look at the past and say it wasn't even honoring them during the time of the Civil War right afterwards, but in fact the memorialization of them all took place at a later period to try and reify the Jim Crow era of the 1910s to 30s uh, and instantiate power in the South as a result of that. Uh, now, a lot of people want to tear these statues down. One of the ways you can oppose the tearing down of these statues is essentially to say the destruction of statues such as this, honoring members of the past, is itself a moral wrong because of this principle of filial piety, that you want to uphold aspects of the tradition because anything from the past needs to be brought forward into the future because the, fu because the present can always destroy it. If we value anything about the past, uh, we're always going to be in a position to judge those of the past. We are always going to be in a position to destroy what they have made. It is important that the, that things be brought forward into the future future even if we hate them and disagree with them um so that our works can be honored similarly and all we won't be erased in the same way uh that is an argument that i have heard and put forward and put forward by people who really fucking hate the confederacy and who would hate not hate nazis even more and have said stated as much i would be just as much in favor of nazi statues and not tearing those down. let the um, dead bury the dead I'm tempted to argue that all statues are bad, but... <laughs> public art is important, and how dare you make me defend that public in public. art is great. Statues aren't great. I like statues. statues. I like I many statues. statues. Statues are made to honor people in the past, and also us, we made to honor people uh, in the present, and we're going to make them honor people in the future. We shouldn't honor people. I disagree. How many levels of anarchism are you on? <laughs> shouldn't have heroes they're bad we should absolutely because that because that means we can become one of those people and the alternative 
uh, is like not just literally nihilism, but like the kind of nihilism that nihilists look at and go, okay, but settle down. <laughs> it's not what? What? I think lots what of things are good. What is the point of anything if not to leave your mark to on the world? What is it that you're good. doing? The point is good. Okay. Anyway, uh, there's still some chapter left. Yeah, we're um, not gonna have go out arguing about statues. So yeah, the, there's too much to get through. Um, <laughs> this is this is a, a conversation that I I genuinely struggle to decide whether I really like or I I don't like. Um, mostly because I feel <sighs> I hate that I am concerned that I'm warping my opinion on this to match with the opinion of the team that I picked. Um, I'm, and that's one of the reasons I'm so glad I said the things I said before I read this chapter. Uh, because I w- if, if not, I would be sitting here constantly thinking, do I actually think this, or am I, am I doing a tribalism on the book? Um, <laughs> that's great. That's so wonderful. I think I actually think the things that I think. And I think I have, like, audio evidence of it. Um, But on the other hand, it seems so unlikely that the author could have found all of the things that I think and made them be one team. No, it just means you have a certain, like, personality cluster and set of values that aligns with an actual existing personality type cluster set of values, what have you. The one that the author, at least in their fictional universe, says is the most common one. Like, that's... I'm gonna say something really stupid. Oh, fun. (laughs) It's like saying, oh my god, I'm so concerned. How could I possibly be too much of a Ravenclaw? I like books and talking about books. Uh... (laughs) But for a more complicated suite of ideas. By the way, there's a very good uh, post about uh, comparing the houses of Hogwarts and uh, the Terra Ignota hives, and it's quite funny. So um, I, I think you're sort of touching on something that I um, I think is an important element of sort of my opinions on this, and that's that I think things like houses are um, nonsense, and we shouldn't pay attention to them. Uh, I think they're like the Myers Briggs, right? And they're they're actually more or less meaningless. Um, For a full second, I thought you meant like physical house, and I thought, what? Does he actually believe this? Why? <laughs> I don't believe in houses, <laughs> apartments only. <laughs> houses are an illusion. <laughs> I seconds ago argued against all with- statues, so it'd be par for the course. A house is just four walls with a roof. Um, but also, I'm not experiencing this work in, like, the standard way. Um, I have had so much time to dig my heels in, and I'm so good at digging my heels in, I've practiced it, <laughs> that I, I need to constantly question whether or not I'm just continuing to do that, like, once a week. And um, I don't think that's doing great things for me psychologically. So I will give you a small out, which is that based on some things you were saying and the way you were describing things early on, it was pretty clear you were going to be pretty gung-ho with a lot of the Mason stuff early on. Because, like, people told me, 
how the hell are you in any hive but the Masons? And I can see a lot of similarity between. So, like, I'm inclined to say you're just the right personality type for that. Well, that's good news, because I think this is the first time I've gotten to be on, like, the full-blown majority. Usually people hold that against me. Well, you the problem is... People on majority. People who read the books on Majority Mason and be in the book that is on Majority Masons. The Masons well, are a plurality in the book. The thing sure. to remember is we're going to win. <laughs> it's impending. <laughs> I had a... Uh, I talked about um the... My, uh, Jed's use of the word... Latin word that meant impending, not just uh, uh, close. For a population yeah. majority. Uh, speaking of Latin translations here, uh, the word octoritas is translated as authority. Octoritas, while the closest English translation is authority, is actually a somewhat more complicated concept tied to ideas like the ability to command a crowd, uh, you have a sufficiently loud voice, etc. in classic Latin rhetoric. Uh, notably, this is useful because we have a couple of passages in this chapter and the previous chapter talking about how Achilles' voice is very powerful and carries across battlefields because in ancient battlefields you actually needed to have a commanding voice and this power of auctoritas, which is of course which is tied therefore to vocalization, uh, was also something necessary for all military commanders in order to have their battlefield presence be effective. Mobilization, right? That makes what? sense. You said mobilization. mobilization. It's and mostly just certainly... for saying things. Like if if I tell you verbalization. I thought you said globalization, and I got real confused. No. Um, That is certainly something that you really only have if you're routinely communicating in loud places to large groups of people. Okay, so at a time in my past, I worked with children. Um, I, I need to be very careful about the things I say about that time, but one of the side effects of working with large groups of children in closed spaces is that you really quickly need to learn to be the loudest person for several rooms around you. Um, and if you take, like, a month off, it goes away. You, you don't keep it up. So in a society where you're perpetually in trackard, I more or less buy that no one's very good at shouting. Tully shouted. Uh, Tully has a You don't think Tully had a microphone? No. Tully's also, Tully's a frail, like, young man mm -hmm. with like not very much in the way of muscle yeah because he was on the moon yeah oh we're back to the fucking astronauts aren't we uh what? <laughs> well look how about okay, this okay. would you accept we shouldn't have heavy astronauts <laughs> oh oh wait i forgot something actually useful and important oh what uh what this book is actually based on uh okay so one of the fun things about the Will to Battle specifically is that it's in some ways drawing upon the ideas of Barbara Tuckman's The Guns of August, which is the history of basically the time leading up to and then the first month and change of the First World War, as everybody's uh, trying to make the diplomatic bargains to figure out what the sides of the conflict are actually going to be. People are desperately trying to stop things that are already happening in motion. The beginning of mobilization is happening with specific deadlines for when things are going to happen, and everybody's trying to scramble in the early days of the war to try and make it as a climactic, uh, quick battle that'll have a decisive end, and or people trying to stop that. And when that ultimately fails, uh, the book kind of ends and then leads to the intense drag on of the Western Front from that point forward. Uh, 
here you're seeing a bunch of the diplomacy, we've got a deadline, we've got a bunch of people trying to stop what seems to already be inevitable. There's a couple of structural overlap things going on there. Uh, so I'm going to put that on uh, the reading list as well. But... Okay, Guns of August. Okay. Are you writing down this reading list, or should I have been writing down? I'm writing it down. It's right here. I I don't want to panic you, chat but I'm not in the room with you. It's in general voice chat. Oh, oh, okay. That I knew that. Um, so other things that happen, we get a new flag. Um, mm-hmm. This flag sounds... It doesn't sound like a good flag. But... Uh, not only are you right, the person who makes the official Terra Ignota merch has had difficulty making a version of this flag that anyone is actually satisfied with. Oh, that's pretty funny. From, just from a design perspective, yeah, I'm, I'm so sympathetic to that. It sounds really ugly. Uh, I wish it didn't, but Do you want to buy one? Is there... I don't know what's on the flag on the um, store nowadays. Spoilers. Yeah, neither of us can know. Yeah, I um, can't look, but you can tell us if we can buy a flag that's mentioned in the uh, text right now. There is right not now. a flag for the is for it, this side. Of is the it world. as ugly as I think? Because I I am no. in the strictest possible sense on the side of this flag. I believe uh, there is nothing in the store that matches this flag. You can buy the Romanovan flag, which is not a spoiler. Hey, is there? They talked about the fox about the um bullseye. Is that a black lot bullseye patch? Uh, not that one specifically. I think you can message the creator and ask. Mm-hmm. That would be unusual frequency on Etsy, by the way, mm-hmm. since I will plug wherever I need to plug. Uh, put the, the thing I have from the them is very good. Yeah, same with me. I should put it on something. I'm just not a sticker person. Is it the Masonic uh, sticker? It is. Yeah. It's a good thing they haven't to turned the out to be Nazis. Or at least. <laughs> Because uh, the Blacklaw merch is a book three spoiler. Uh, oh. We've been to Hobstown. Yeah. Is it a sash? No, it's a it's a little symbol, uh, but it's surrounded by the words, uh, go tell your lawmakers we stateless few live well, which is not uh, does not happen until the Hobstown chapter. Lawless. That's quite good. Those yeah. people, unfortunately, still have to obey laws. Anyway, uh, there's this. <laughs> We're not going to do that one again. On. Not this deep in. <laughs> Hang on, this chapter, uh, what else is left in this chapter? Uh, yes, uh, we're on the almost the guns at the of end. August. Secret alliances okay. were a big part of the diplomacy of World War I and created a lot of problems very famously, um, especially at the beginning of the war. The concept of a secret alliance is discussed with Achilles saying, what, or somebody saying to the Utopians, did you have a secret alliance with both the Masons and Achilles? that when Achilles and Mason were trying to make a deal for themselves, they were both concerned that it might mess with Utopia, uh, which is somewhat clarified by the whole the Masonic relationship with the Utopians is one-way thing, and that solves some of that difficulty. But if you have a soldier from one of the world wars, which Achilles is, asking you about multiple entangling secret alliances, I think that's subject for concern. Yeah, that's a problem. To be clear, the secret help, I'm, I'm going to frame it like that for the Utopians. Great. Way to go, Cornell. Good job. We also have Achilles' suggestion that uh, the reason that Mason cares so much about the Utopians is not because of his personal feelings towards Apollo, but because of his sense of duty, mm-hmm. uh, which is cute. And also, 
so Masonic. I love it. Uh... <laughs> uh, then I think we get into... So there's a lot actually in this end of the chapter about how how much Achilles doesn't want to be on the other side of a war from Mycroft. And one, yeah, it's so yeah, interesting. It's guaranteed that it's going to happen because that's where you get your maximum tragedy. But, but two, what is going on with Mycroft that Achilles is worried about being on the other side of a war from him? Achilles, I got a couple of, uh, like, I got a couple of answers Achilles, that are interesting here. Achilles and, and Mycroft... Okay, I shouldn't drop you. Sorry, go on. So first of all, Achilles and Mycroft have known each other for a long time. Yeah. Um, which I think is the one that war was going to get to. Yeah. But on top of that, of the number of people who actually have experience in war, Mycroft is the only one who isn't Achilles and isn't six inches tall. Like, Mycroft has actually, been in a two-on-two fight to the death over concepts of ideology and right and the fate of the world. Like, when are he we... has actually experienced war by the standards in, of this book. In Filiopiety, when is it? May 3rd. When, how far out from Bridger are we? End of March, so... Okay, so month last change. we heard the toy soldiers, they were doing pretty bad. Mycroft's probably the only one left. The only one left who's... Well, there's also Saladin, there's like... But, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not great. Um, the other thing is, you know, talking about how much... Achilles can understand Mycroft's mind and Mason's mind. Uh, the fact that uh, Mycroft is, you know, a Homeric pilled guy, uh, that he understands these concepts enough, makes him, you know, naturally sympathetic. But also, he's also the last of the Marty Bosch in a certain sense, aside from Tully. So he understands a lot of the concepts and history behind war. Uh, there's just a lot of reasons to think Mycroft is going to be a major player in the conflict. I actually, uh, one of the things I would love to do before book four is to create a tier list uh, of the various <laughs> characters and factions. Like, I, there, I've i got my tier right. list mentally set up, but it, like, my who would win in a fight tier list goes, Bridger's at the extreme top. Like, well outclassing every other being that could possibly exist in the setting. Okay, uh, back off. You're already wrong. <laughs> it turns out, Bridger doesn't win wars. He kills himself. Bridger uh, is the ultimate anti-Bridger counter. Yeah, that's what the top tier is like. The only thing that can beat it is itself. But, <laughs> but that's... that's what the top tier is. Uh, <laughs> tier after that, which is a substantial way down, is Achilles, for obvious reasons. And then whatever the tier below that is, is Mycroft. And then below that is like Sniper, Dominic, Saladin, uh, and then further down and further down. But, like, Mycroft is scary if you actually think about all the shit he does and has done. Dominic is scarier. First I, Dominic I don't know. Dominic loses every fight he does. He's in on screen. That's not true. Dominic wins every fight he has against Saladin and Mycroft. He doesn't, uh, though. Madame backs him against... up. He gets backup from, like, a hundred-year-old woman. <laughs> he doesn't win against Mycroft. Why? He doesn't fight Mycroft at all. You're right. I don't know he why beats, I said that. He beats Saladin with Madame's help. But I put Saladin at a lower tier than Mycroft because Saladin's an idiot. No, he fights Mycroft in the car. Oh yeah, that's right. No, yeah, fully. There's like a there's a minor struggle. That's not really a fight. That's a fight. And even then, he's caught by Madame's man catcher anyway. So. And then he confirms uh. that he was fighting an actual dog. Um, 
But yeah, my I think Mycroft is like legitimately the second scariest character at this point in the in the story. Like in terms of physical ability. Like Cornell is probably the highest uh after them, because Cornell is just like big and will fucking throw a motherfucker. Uh but I don't know if we know how fucked Cornell is. We know he's tall. We've we know seen he's tall, him we bodily know he will throw pick somebody. Up adults. That's true. And toss them. Like he didn't and you need to be really strong to, like, at arm's length, grab someone about the throat and just levitate them away from you. Like, that takes yeah. some doing. And he's done that to Mycroft. <laughs> yeah. We have no reason to think that he's particularly capable in a fight, but he's just strong. Mm -hmm. And big. Anyway, this is for another Cornell's time. But, uh... It is. Um, um, there's also the fact we that, We get like, the Jeeps. My... The Jeeps! The Jeeps. Achilles wants Jeeps. Mm-hmm. I think this is World War Achilles talking. Uh, the concern here is, of course, about logistics, mm -hmm. making sure that you can get everything to where it needs to go once the transit system goes down. Mm -hmm. By the way, Achilles thinks the transit system is going to go down. Do you agree? Achilles says the transit system is going to go down. Because if it doesn't, Achilles says he'll do it himself. <laughs> and it's the right call. Once he's built his jeeps, he should take down the transit system. Yeah. yeah. Eureka is going to be sad. My book for uh, predictions, uh, a lot of it involves what's going to happen with the transit system. So we'll get into that at the end of this book. Mm -hmm. um, Actually, if you, what happens to the set sets if you take away the transit system? You can still play like, with could they data. plug into like just the internet? Yes. What? Well, it seems like the Cartesian set sets are like specifically built to do transit system stuff. They can do other stuff. They built they're built to play with large data sets. Yeah. And they can do other okay. things. Alright. And then um the the talk happens between they Achilles wants horses and jeeps. They're also gonna build autonomous flying vehicles. Mm -hmm. Um Autonomous this all seems land vehicles. And flying. Oh, okay. I forget that. Mason confirms both. Mason, th they're going to do the jeeps because they can start now. Mm -hmm. Mason thinks they can build something better that will fly. And Achilles says, well, then do, but but build the jeeps now. We have the plans already. Mm -hmm. You know what's weird? That jeep is still like the best version of that product. Jeep is like, what? Jeep, uh, they're very easy to make on mass. Okay, but it's been a long time. They never got unseated in terms of the easy-to-make-on-mass land traversal vehicle? Uh, a basic, like, World War II Jeep, it's hard to get simpler. And not, like, have it be garbage. Like, those things are pared down to be... They do their job, they do it sturdily, they do it well. They pull to the but left. But there's not... What? They all pull to the left. <laughs> oh, do they? Yeah. Oh, because of the weight? I, uh... Yeah, I think it was... I'm very surprised... Up through the church war, they never managed to oust the jeep. Well, the problem is, it's not that hard to oust something if you're willing to make it more complicated. Making something less complicated is a lot more difficult to oust. It's like trying to fundamentally remove parts of a thing and improve it. Like, uh, it, it's not easy to do. Um, brand placements. <laughs> I don't even understand what's being discussed. You can remove brand placements to improve a thing. Although, if brand anyone would like us to do more brand placements, please don't take that joke as an indication that I wouldn't. <laughs> like advertisements. All right, I'm going to move on. Uh, is there anything left in this chapter we want to discuss? I think the last thing we get is that the they kill a bull. Yes. Yep, they, we get the cow. We're there. Yes. Let's. Okay. Yeah. 
Animal sacrifice in ancient Greece. Uh, you uh, you want to kill a good quality animal. Uh, you want to have its blood uh, spilled appropriately. Uh, you then want to get your hands in, uh, remove the thigh bones, and cover those in fat, and then burn that uh, as an offering to the gods themselves. Then you actually eat the animal yourself. Uh, you don't... Uh, other religions will have you lose the meat that you sacrifice. This is not the case for ancient Greek faith. Uh, this is important because there's a very famous animal sacrifice in the Odyssey where, well, they sacrifice some cattle and it goes very poorly for all involved. Uh, and it causes the death of Odysseus's entire crew uh, because they sacrificed the wrong cattle. So picking the right cows to sacrifice, very important. Good job, Achilles. Um, this does kind of make me question... Uh, in terms of the Temple of Jerusalem, in order to build a hypothetical third temple, they need a very specific kind of cow that may or may not still exist. Uh, they need what's called a red heifer, and there are various rabbinical opinions on what would count as a red heifer for these purposes. Uh, and they would need to sacrifice it and uh, uh, obtain some particular uh, animal product from its uh, death. Um, I'm not 100% 100 familiar on the certainty, but... There is, in fact, a project to genetically engineer a red heifer so that a third temple can be built in Jerusalem. Um, it's not very popular or well-funded. It's kind of a fringe, crazy project. Who but, is uh, funding it's a it? thing people could do. Is it, is it people in Jerusalem who want to build a third temple? Or is it people in America who want to build a third temple? I think it's people in Jerusalem. It's like a really weird subgroup, but yeah. Okay. Oh, Achilles and Mason together sacrifice a cow. What does that mean? Uh, are they married? Is that how that works? <laughs> that is not how that works. Uh, that is a new ship, though. I think you've just invented the Achilles Cornell ship. Good job. There's no way I'm the first person. I just don't believe you. <laughs> There's not. We don't have that many people in the fandom. You can people can totally make new ships. I can be wait now. Uh, Madame. This is. This would be like Ganymede. I'm gonna say. Five on my list, because a lot of them are easy, right? You have Mycroft Saladin, mm -hmm. you have Apollo and Apollo three Cornell. people. <laughs> Apollo and everyone, frankly. Um, but, like, really early on, uh, probably Dominic Julia. Mm -hmm. Dominic Achilles Carlisle is Cornell. more popular. Dominic Carlisle is more popular. Then Dominic Julia? Yeah. Dominic Carlisle is really popular. Okay, I don't, I don't understand you people. Um... <laughs> How did you miss... <sighs> okay, that's fine. Anyway, this is how uh, Cornell gets his uh, Mojave. Oh so my great. god! <laughs> what? He gets... Because Achilles is a Mojave. <laughs> he, like, he traded up to a newer model, let's say. The worst part is, not only does this make sense, but now I think you've just invented the Cornell Mason Tully Marty ship as well. <laughs> Because it's Tully Mojave, actually. Mm -hmm. I think Cornell Mason has to hate Tully Marty. Doesn't mean they can't fuck. I don't know why. That's true. That's one of the lessons I've learned doing this podcast. <laughs> and with that, I think we can move on to an ending rant. May I do the honors? Yeah. All right. Is there anything left we want to discuss first? No. I wanted um, to rant more about how I don't like the little piety or piety of any kind, but I, I got the sense that people are sort of tired of it. Part of the problem uh, is we can't hear half of your argument. Uh, oh, okay. it makes it hard. 
I have one last thing, which is what we end the chapter on. Um, something is happening. Mycroft really doesn't that often refer to what's happening in the present. Um, there's the present of the story. And it's to the point, I remember a conversation a while ago now in the Discord about how someone was like surprised or often didn't think about how the story was in context being written in the past um, or in the future the story taking place in the past from Mycroft's telling of it. And I'm I'm not really on board for that. I think that should be clear to the average reader, like, the entire time. But rarely does he actually reference where he is or what he's doing. Um, every time he does, it's been really deeply ominous. When we end this chapter, he's talking about how unclean he is uh, and that nothing can undo what he's done. And these days, that fact grows harder to forget. Is this just the war, or has, has something happened? Cause... Here's my thinking, is that the war getting more and more severe, or the lead-up to it, means that him having removed the Martys from the world, the Martys who could have made the war make more sense, who could have guided people to be the, in the right places at the right times to make the war good, are all gone. He took them away, and that's on him. And They will never be back to fix the problem that is happening. Apollo okay, I had focused a little more on the forget part. Um, like, I thought maybe there was something in here to be gleaned about Mycroft and his hallucinations getting worse. I think his hallucinations do appear to be getting worse. Like, these two chapters we've been talking about took place on the span of a single day. And in that day, he is contacted multiple times by ghosts who he has full conversations with. Mm -hmm. And then goes to the underworld. Like, it's bad. It's not going yeah, great. It's talked... really bad. <laughs> Have I spoken on the podcast about my my Utopians made backup Martys idea? What? Yes. I fucking okay, forgot about so that. I've gotta I've gotta open this with I no longer support this theory. But for a while I was spinning this thought that maybe the reason he keeps getting contacted by people is the like Apollo knew the Martys. There's all that stuff that Brill had been doing with, like, mind uploads. Um, maybe before the Martys were killed, Apollo had them, like, not perfectly, but, like, they made a backup of the Martys and just kept them on the moon. Um, and now that the war is starting to happen, the Utopians said, well, perfect, we, we have, here's our war people. Um, and they started, like, talking to the world leaders in secret. And also nagging Mycroft, because it seems like that's just kind of what they did. I thought um, you were choking. I think it doesn't work, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, we've already had a resurrected figure to guide us through the war. Do we need another 17 of them? Oh, I think I've talked about how I've done to get the Marty count. Um, Sorry, go on. <laughs> you did talk about the Marty count once. Yes. There's one mystery Marty. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. So, I don't actually, I don't think that I don't think Providence here was limited by a number of resurrections it could write into the story. Um, hey, hey, we've actually got a hard limit on the number of resurrections we've got available to us, which is useful to keep track of. Oh, because of the resurrection potions? Yep. One was sure. used, there's one left. What was, uh, there were only two? Okay, so there's one to go. Good. Fun. Um, it's a lot about but that. But like, um... if, if you wanted... You could have any number of people be. That's true. You could like resurrect you could have, You're allowed 
to have had backup plans before Bridger shows up. Um, the reason I think it doesn't pan is that it seems like Mycroft just really is this crazy. And if the Brill Institute was this good at their mind uploading, they could have even a bad copy of a war historian. They'd probably be doing their own thing by now. But um, at one point, I did think that's what was going on. Christ, I hope that doesn't turn out to be what's going on. I'm going to be so mad. <laughs> I ain't saying shit. Yeah, don't. That's the rule. But, oh. <laughs> if I anyway. call the end of this story after prefacing with, this, is, this isn't what's going to happen. I don't put any faith in this guess. <sighs> what, are we, what are we leaving on? Oh, let's leave it on. Hey, here's some fun stuff about the Odyssey and Odysseus' journey to the underworld. So, uh, in Book 11 of the Odyssey, Odysseus is narrating his own trip to the underworld. Um, he gets there, he actually travels uh, out of the Straits of, the, of Gibraltar, which are called in the story the Pillars of Pericles, and he travels north from there to a place where there is no sunlight, uh, and everyone's constantly miserable, so I'm assuming the United Kingdom. Uh, but aside from that, um, he sacrifices a couple of animals and has their blood pool, and the ghosts cannot communicate with him unless they drink this blood, mostly. There's a couple of exceptions there. Um, this is notable because it means that in order for the dead to talk, you need a blood sacrifice, which is also how Bridger's power works. In order to permanently resurrect someone, you, someone else needs to die. And the scene where Achilles is talking about, do you remember that part in the Odyssey? Uh, the A, he's directly referencing that scene in like his actual dialogue. He's saying sort of the lines that he says in that scene. But also, Achilles has been given a blood sacrifice so that he can talk, which actually does happen in the Odyssey. Achilles drinks the blood and therefore can talk and be part of the world, um, for at least a little while. Uh, other interesting things that happen, uh, Achilles's, one of Achilles's crew members, I think his name is, uh, Antenor? I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, he's, uh, just a guy who fell off the roof as they were getting ready to go on their trip to the underworld, and they didn't notice he died, so they see him in the underworld and like, why are you here? How did, how did, what? <laughs> You're... You're... Are you dead? And he's like, yes, I'm dead. You didn't bury me. I can't even go into the underworld properly. He's <laughs> like, we're gonna, we're gonna do that when we get back. Then Achilles talks to the ghost of Tiresias. Tiresias being this uh, prophet sage uh, who has a very interesting backstory that involves him changing genders and being blind and all this other stuff. He can actually talk without drinking the blood, but he can't do his prophesying while not drinking the blood. So he drinks the blood. He tells Odysseus all the stuff that he's got to know. Um, Odysseus then talks to his dead mother, uh, he then sees, like, a procession of a bunch of famous dead women, um, he then talks to a bunch of the people who he knew from the Trojan War. He sees Achilles, he sees Patroclus, he sees Agamemnon, he sees Ajax, he talks to all of them, Agamemnon says, hey, I'm dead, and Odysseus is like, why are you dead? And then Agamemnon says, well, you see, my wife's a bitch. Uh... <laughs> And all of Don't worry about uh, Iphigenia. It's nothing. Don't listen to her. Yeah, Homer never brings it up at all. <laughs> uh, but that's got a whole lot of importance because the, the death of Agamemnon had a lot of influence on uh, Telemachus's story and Odysseus and whether when he goes home, will his wife be faithful? Will his wife try to kill him? Yada, yada, yada. Um, uh, he also tries to talk to Ajax, and you actually see in this story, you know, how Ajax and Agamemnon are playing a game.